thank you, Anita, for those prayers, and good morning again, church. It's great to be with you all today, whether you're here in person or online. Today, we have kind of our uh, finish, our recap of this series that we've been going through. I'll be looking at several questions that were asked over the last couple of weeks. At the end of the sermon, there'll be an open mic time, and so what I would love for you to do is to even be thinking now, what is something that you have learned over these past 10 weeks? What's something that's maybe encouraged you? What insights has it given you? And we'll have a time for you guys to share what God has been impressing on your heart during this series. Now, Funnily enough, most of the questions that were asked were really questions about the things that Scripture says the least about, and maybe that's why. Uh, maybe, you know, there's this mystery there that we would like to define more clearly than the Bible really um, speaks to. So let me just recap a little bit of this image that we've been looking to on the left, and this image on the left is an image that many of us grew up with, and it's important to examine it because, one, it isn't just this idea that's there, but it actually influences how we live our lives and influences how we interpret Scripture. There's a complexity bias. Uh, Alexis Tocqueville says it this way, the world prefers a simple lie to a complex truth. And we also know we have confirmation biases. And so if we have sort of this image here on the left in our mind when we read Scriptures and it mentions heaven or it mentions hell, we put it into this dynamic on the left. But the reality of the scriptural narrative is much more to that on the right. It's more complex. It's a little bit more challenging to answer the questions. There's more gray there. But I think it is a more biblical approach and way of viewing God's story. We've also used these four words to talk about the biblical narrative and God's plan this idea that we were created good, that things have went amiss, there was a fall, that things could be better, and that's the redemption that Jesus brings, and ultimately things will be restored. The gospel isn't how do we get people to heaven. The gospel starts with the beginning of the story of Genesis 1, and God's creating us good in his image, giving us this vocation to bring flourishing to the world. And so those images impact how we view Scripture and how we view how to live now. We've also looked at John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And I think as I grew up with this verse, I had that first image in mind, and, and I read it more as God so loved people, God so loved my people, God so loved our denomination because we were the ones to finally get it right, right? After 2,000 years, our little denomination finally figured out the truth. For God so loved us, but this is not what it says. God so loved everybody, not just me, not just my tribe, not just my political party, not just my religion, not just my country, but the whole world, all people, all creation. So if God sends his son because of his love for all, wouldn't it make sense that his rescue plan is intended to rescue all? This present world matters. It's not just about the future, but here and now, how are we to live our lives? 
See, Jesus' teaching in the gospel isn't how we can leave this earth, but about how we are to live right now. Jesus wasn't just a great teacher. He wasn't just teaching us things he wanted us to believe. He did that, but then he went around doing stuff, making this world better, healing and restoring people as he did. Jesus is basically asking, what would the world look like if God were running the show? We prayed the Lord's Prayer, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This journey of bringing these two things together, and that starts now with us. And that brings us to our first question. What happens when I die? If I'm a believer, do I go to heaven? Now, there's very little in Scripture about what happens between the time of death and the second coming. So when we die and the second coming is when everybody is resurrected. What happens in that interim period, there's not a lot there in Scripture. We get one key verse with Jesus on the cross and the criminal next to him, and he says to the criminal, today you will be with me in paradise. What is that paradise? I don't know, but I think it's with Christ. So when we die, we can be with Christ. Let's hear N.T. Wright speak to this very question. We'll see the video now. Will be with him, which is the best thing that you could possibly imagine. But it will be a time of rest and refreshment and delight. I don't think it will be an unconscious time, but it's hard to describe who we will be at that point. You can use the word soul if you like, but the Bible doesn't use the word soul that often, so it's not necessarily a great help to know whether that's the best way of talking about it. But then after that time, and it's hard to say whether we will experience it as a long time or not, though there are some hints that we might, then God will do something quite new with the whole creation and all those who have been in that resting mode, if you like, will be raised from the dead and will be the new inhabitants of this new heaven and earth together which God will make, which will be both very like what we presently know and quite unlike because there will be no death, no corruption, no decay. It's hard for us because our minds are conditioned by a lot of Western philosophical thought, it's hard for us to imagine a non-corruptible physicality, a body that won't be corruptible and decaying. But that is what we're promised, and it's actually very exciting, even though it's hard to imagine. Right, um, really comes at that question as well, and he talks about that new creation when we're resurrected and we're fully restored in bodily form. Paul talks a little bit about that inner period in First Thessalonians. So he says, let's, we'll skip 13 and 14 there, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him, those who have already died before he has come again. Now, I think this time in between death and resurrection will pass quickly. I think it will be with the presence of Christ, but we're not given a lot of detail about it, and so I don't speculate too much on it. But eventually, there will be bodily resurrection like Jesus was. Paul tells us that Jesus' resurrection was the first fruit. He was restored. 
His body was restored. He wasn't given a new body when he rose. He still had the scars from the crucifixion. Remember in Revelation 21.5, the verse on the, scre- on the screen here, Behold, I am making all things new, not I am making all new things. And so we'll have this restored body that we will be able to live in heaven and earth overlap. So what God did for Jesus, he will do for the universe. And now let's jump into second question. How can I know for sure that I will go to heaven when I die? Now, okay, first off, going back to the last question, I would say when we die, we can be with Christ. I think heaven comes after the second coming. But how can I know I will be in the presence of Christ when I die? Or when Christ returns, how do I know I'll make it into new creation? So scripture says that when Christ returns, all are resurrected and there will be a judgment. And we studied the judgment several weeks back. And there needs to be a judgment. Evil needs to come to light. In order for things to be set right, we need to know what went wrong, right? So those things need to come out. So let me introduce another question, and I'll come back to this question because I think it will help us to answer it. Judgment implies a binary outcome, heaven or hell. So I have a hard time combining this with the future heaven-earth reunification. So for me, judgment is not a binary. It's not guilty and innocent. Really, we're all guilty, right? And so at this judgment, how do things get restored? I love the concept of restorative justice that is used now and spreading around the globe. It was most famously used in South Africa after apartheid. How do we go from here to there? What does it look like to make things new, to restore, to bring justice? It might look like something like that. As we unpack the image of fire earlier, fire wasn't really torture. Fire was, again, judgment, this purification, this refiner's fire, burning up those things perhaps in us that are self-centered, abusive, neglectful, things in us that will not make it into new creations, attitudes, unforgiveness, hating our neighbor, The fire as this purification of us, refining us, because we know those things will not make it into new creation. So how does Jesus refine us here? Through relationship with him, as we grow with him, his grace becomes transformative. We grow as we are in community, as we learn from one another, we go through trials and hardships? What will that growth look like when heaven and earth come together? We don't know, but we know those things that are evil will not make it into new creation. We know those things in our own hearts that maybe we wish weren't there will be refined out, but scripture doesn't say how that happens. So let's come back to that previous question. How do I know for sure I'll be with Christ when I die? Last week, we looked at Ephesians 2. By grace, you are saved through faith. We know that it is this gift of God that we can participate in, that we can receive, that we can live in response to. God's grace is the primary action. It's the first act. 
And ours is a secondary. It's a response to that grace, to that gift. It's also important, but God's movement towards us is the most important. There's an act of will that we can decide, but it's really about joining in a relationship with God, joining in a relationship with community. We see how Jesus did this in walking with his disciples. When they would mess up, he continued to journey with them. He continued to come alongside, and he does the same with us. If someone wants to know, how can I start that relationship with Jesus? How can I begin to live that transformed life? Sometimes I'll present this type of a dynamic to them that really is an invitation to come into that and to journey with Jesus that admit that we have missed the mark. And we looked a little bit at what that missing the mark looked like, that word sin looks like in Scripture, right? Not living out. God's original call to bring flourishing to this world is where it starts, and then it builds from there. Believing in Jesus, that who he was, that he was God, that he came to bring us life. Confessing, repenting, committing to live for him. And dedicating yourself to following him through the help of the Holy Spirit. And these are communal things. Salvation in Scripture is mostly talked about in a communal setting. And we want to enter into community with one another. Because we grow as we do. As a church, we've lifted up this vision of loving God, loving others, love doing good. As a way, as a template for us, as guardrails, if you will, to focus in on that relationship. It's not just say a prayer and now you're in. It's more of entering into relationship. I think some of the extremes that I'll see is that it's all God and there's no part for me to play in this. It's his gift, but I think if we walk our relationship like that, there really probably isn't much of a relationship and we cheapen God's grace. The other extreme is anxiousness in terms of, have I done enough? Am I good enough? Do I have enough that I have done to earn my way there? And I don't think either of those polar opposites are what God had in mind. He invites us into a way of being, into a relationship that will have ebbs and flows as our relationships do, but he's continued to be faithful to us in the midst of those times. Colossians is the passage that we've come to a couple of times, and I want to read this because I think it's important for us in understanding and answering these questions. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. So the second commandment, you remember what the second commandment is? There were ten of them. Is to not make an image of God, right? like the other religions did. They would have statues and idols and things. And of course, no sooner does Israel get this command than they make a golden calf, right? And so, but here Paul is saying that Jesus, in fact, is the image. And as we look back in Genesis 1, we are image bearers of Christ as well. This is the beauty, I think, of our faith, that we get to represent that to the world. He is the firstborn. This doesn't mean that there was a time he didn't exist, but he is the heir. He is the one to carry on the Father's mission into the world. And he's not of creation, right? He's over creation. There's an authority that Christ has here, that he is over all of creation. 
Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Word fullness there is entirety in Greek. So it's like the fullness of the fullness. The entirety of the entirety, right? God is giving us an image of himself. He's revealing himself to us in Jesus. Nothing else reveals God better than Jesus. And then verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, all things, not a few things, not some things, not this and that, but all things. God so loved the world, so loved the cosmos, and his plan is to rescue all of it. And that leads us to this next question. Why evangelize if all will likely bow before Jesus? I feel there is now less urgency to share Christ. And if we think of that first image, if you, you know, are thinking everybody's going to make it into heaven, right? Everybody's going to be able to escape. So what difference does it make now? Well, first, I'm hopeful that every knee will bow. Scripture tells us that, but we also know that injustice, evil, oppression, abuse, greed are, are not going to make it into new creation. N.T. Wright says it this way, if the only point is to save souls from the wreck of the world so they can leave and go to heaven, why bother to make this world a better place? That's really part of the heart of the question. But if God is going to do for the whole creation what he did for Jesus in his resurrection to bring them back here on earth, then those who have been rescued by the gospel are called to play a part right now in the advance renewal of the world. God's redemption and restoration, church, are happening now. His plan is for it to happen now, to change lives now, to minister now, not to wait. And we get to be a part of that, working for justice, working to feed the hungry, working at visiting the prisoner, working in our workplaces for the flourishing of everybody because it makes a difference now for people right now. God invites us into that he doesn't need our participation, but he invites our participation in to spread his kingdom. What if you had something right now that could change somebody's life? Wouldn't you want to give it to them now versus later? Now, I don't think following Jesus makes your life any easier. It doesn't exempt you from trials or sickness. Jesus says, follow me, pick up your cross because it will not be an easy road, but I think it is the best possible way to live now. I want to invite people into following Jesus now because I think it's the best way to live, to bring transformation, right? To bring meaning, to bring purpose. So following Jesus now is good news because Jesus can bring hope, peace, love, joy, to this world and to our lives, and our world needs these things. So working for the good of others, for their healing, for their flourishing, to bring compassion. God wants to bring real change to this world right now. 
Several other questions came in, and I couldn't get to all of them, but three quick questions. Will there be marriage in heaven? And Scripture says there will not be marriage or given in marriage. And so what does that mean? Well, I had one person describe it to me this way. It means there's going to be free love in heaven, right? And I think it's hard for us to imagine, you know, having, you know, deep intimacy without sin, without jealousy, without, you know, basically things that distract us and put us at the center. And yet, when heaven and earth come together in new creation, we won't have those things. So I think we'll be able to experience a level of intimacy with people that is difficult to do now. Will it be possible for us to sin in heaven? And will we have free will in heaven? Um, I think it won't be possible to sin. This is what Scripture is telling us. Those things will be not in new creation, not in new Jerusalem. Those things will be, if you will, burned up perhaps in our own lives, right? What does that mean then for free will? We know that God is love and that we know he has given us free will. And yet, so how does that work? I don't know. (laughs) Scripture doesn't say. My guess would be that being in the presence of Christ, the appeal for things that are sin, right, are usually cheap substitutes. Oftentimes when we miss the mark, it's because we've made a good thing an ultimate thing. Maybe that's our work. Maybe that's our family. Maybe that's a hobby where those things are all good, but they've taken the center place in our lives. They've had an impact that maybe isn't helpful in our lives. And perhaps when we are in the presence of Christ in new creation, those things will no longer be appealing in that way. Final question. For those that don't know Christ when they die, is there a second chance while we wait for Jesus to come? I'm hopeful there will be. There isn't a lot of scripture on this. Um, In Romans 2, verses 12 to 16, Paul talks about Gentiles that never knew the law, that never knew the Torah. He talks about having, you know, a, a sense of the law on their hearts anyway, and have they lived in response to that, and God looking at their heart. In John 5, Jesus talks about those who are already dead will hear Jesus's voice at the second coming, right? So there seems to be this ability to respond to Christ in that way. Most of Jesus spends his time talking about how to live now. And we know that in our lives there will be people that have never heard of Jesus. We know probably people in our lives that you know, we're coming to church, we're following Jesus, and now aren't. When we lived in Utah, you know, 95% of our county was Mormon, and it stirred into me the impact of what we grow up in. And I thought, you know what, if I was Muslim, living in a Muslim country, I would probably be a good Muslim right now. When people ask this question, I also know it's a very personal question that you probably have somebody in your life that you're wondering, where are they now? Maybe their faith was not clear. Maybe they never really heard. Maybe some have heard, but they were, you know, I've heard horrific stories of of spiritual abuse from the very people supposed to be bringing them the good news, and so they don't want anything to do with Christianity because of those representing it. 
destroying their lives? Where is God's compassion for those people? We know there will be a judgment, and it will start with us, what we have done, what we have not done. I think at the judgment for some, it will be the first time they're ever seeing Jesus and experiencing him and knowing him. And I'm hopeful that in the presence of Christ, they will decide to trust in him, to follow him. We know in Revelation that the gates of heaven are always open. We know that God is love. It's the word that is described as his definition. We know that he gives us free will. So some may not choose to bend their knee. But I hope that in the presence of Christ that his grace will be irresistible for us. That what clouded our vision before, what distracted our hearts before will be burnt away, and we will see him for who he truly is. What do I know for sure? I know the character and heart of Jesus Christ. We have four gospels, four different ways of looking at who he is. We know that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the best representation of God that we have. And how did he respond when the disciples messed up, when Peter denied him? He restores Peter. He comes along. He encourages. How did Jesus respond to his enemies? Now, Jesus tells us to love our enemies, right? Does that mean the same for him? Yeah. God doesn't ask us to do something he has not done himself. Now, I don't think Jesus had enemies in his perspective, but... And I don't think he really wants us to have enemies, but he tells us we need to love our enemies. But who did Jesus have the hardest time with? Who were the most angry? It was the religious leaders, right? Those who, that's who he came up against the most. Why? Why is his harshest words for the religious leaders? Because they were putting barriers between God and the people, right? They were, they were putting on a burden to the people that they weren't willing to help with. His love of God and wanting people to love God is the heart of why he was so angry with those that were making it difficult to follow him. Now, those religious leaders are also the ones that brought accusation against Jesus, that demanded he be killed, sent him to the cross. And how did Jesus respond to his enemies on the cross? Now, we're not talking about those who had never heard of him. We're not talking about the disciples who are trying to follow him. The very people that sent him to the cross, how does Jesus respond? Does he call down fire on them? What does he say on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. When I read that verse, I'm like, they know very well what they're doing, right? Jesus was trying to tell them about himself and that they were missing the point. They surely know what they're doing, and yet in Jesus' perspective, they don't know. There's a lot of questions we don't have answers to, but we know that Jesus will be the judge, and there's nobody else I would want in that position than Jesus with his understanding, his compassion, and his grace. Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, does this 
mean it doesn't matter how we live now? No, absolutely not. That's what Jesus is most concerned about, is how we are living now. To not live as change from God's grace is to cheapen his grace. We have our part to play. This fall, we're going to have a series called The Jesus Way, and it's going to be all about this overlap of heaven and earth. What does it look like to live now in light of this reality? And I'm looking forward to it. But what I want to do now is shift gears and allow you um, a time to share an encouragement. I'll have, um, I forgot to get people to walk around with the mic this service. I had asked two people um, in the previous service. Uh, but Anita and uh, uh, maybe Matt, um, you, got, you can grab a mic. And so what I would love is just a short sort of what's something you have learned what is something that you have been encouraged by? What's kind of any surprise moments um, in this series? And we'll give us an opportunity for you to share. Now, most of you probably haven't even been here for the whole 10, but anything in this series that has been an encouragement, I'd love to hear from you. Um, I just want to say that this might be the best teaching series um, in the past 20 years, I've been at this church, and uh, it's completely eye-opening. And um, I think it really changes everything once you realize um, that uh, how, it, how it's all going to end. And it, it's really in, in a really new kind of beginning. Mm. Um, so I just want to thank you. Thanks, Roger. Hi, uh, I just really appreciate the shift in perspective because uh, sometimes integrating our faith in our lives could seem so far apart in the, you know, the other paradigm, mm -hmm. where in this, it really makes sense about how we see, you know, our, our personal responsibilities and the things that we can do now, as opposed to wait for a heaven, mm -hmm. where you know, God in so many ways uh, kind of gives us opportunity to do that, to experience some of that. So it's a really great paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it makes so much more sense. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Thanks, David. Yeah, so I am to... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for this series. So uh, when it first began, I was telling my life group that I'm going to listen to the recordings and take notes, and which I have, because this is so important. Um, and I think the the uh, what encouraged me the most is that, um, like what Passaway said towards the end, um, God is the compassionate God, and He is making all things new. Mm. Thanks, Elaine. All right. And Matthew, you can share as well. You don't just have to walk around with the mic. <laughs> <laughs> Something. I mean, I think a couple weeks ago we talked about judgment and, um, you know, I think judgment's always something not very nice to talk about, but I think the way you framed it was judgment is part of the renewal mm. um, and the coming to life and the purification. So I thought that was a really mm. helpful, practical reframing of something that we don't like to talk about so much. Mm. Mm. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Anita. Thank you, uh, Matthew, for being willing to step up at the last minute there. Um, I was struck um, uh, 
in the series myself. It was probably a series that started um, last summer um, because I knew in reworking this, it was reworking some of what I had grown up with myself and that it would take time to be able to articulate it in a way. Um, but it's been my own journey as well. And as I was preparing this week, um, you know, Jesus' words on the cross were just so powerful to me that I need his forgiveness. We need his forgiveness. 